You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Keep waiting for Micah to be done putting his guitar away with enough time to take me up on my offer to do like a little do-si-do, like with that little bumper. No, he says? Okay. Those of you watching online, you're like, what's going on? Don't worry, nothing. So, well, welcome. Um, talking about love this week, because if you've been tracking with this teaching series called Advent Conspiracy, this week is Love All. And uh, boy, oh boy, it's going to be interesting. I came across something this week. Um, well, it's actually saved from, from photos in my phone from years and years ago. Um, I don't know if you have this, where you find like a blog post or, or something that just like strikes you and you take a screenshot of it. This one actually is old enough to be from a newspaper. Some of you are like, what is that? So I took a picture of this. I want to read it to you because um, it struck me years ago, and I pulled it out again this, uh, this week, and I don't know, it just, it just struck a chord with me, especially thinking about Christmas, we think about this call to love. This is called 1 Corinthians 13, a Christmas version. And for those of you watching online, our online community pastor, Matt, is going to put this in the comment thread. So here's what it says. If I decorate my house perfectly with plaid bows, strands of twinkling lights, but do not show love to my family, I'm just another decorator. If I slave away in the kitchen, baking dozens of Christmas cookies, preparing gourmet meals, and arranging a beautifully adorned table at mealtime, but I don't show love to my family, I'm just another cook. If I work at a soup kitchen, carol at the nursing home, give all I have to charity, but don't show love to my family, it profits me nothing. If I trim the house, shimmering angels, crocheted snowflakes, a myriad of holiday parties, sing in the choir, but do not focus on those I love most, I've missed the point. In other words, love stops the cooking to hug a child. Love sets aside the decorating to kiss the spouse. Mandy heard that one, by the way, (laughs) so we're clear. Love is kind, though it is harried and tired. Love doesn't envy another's home that has coordinated Christmas china and table linens. Love doesn't yell at the kids to get out of the way, but is thankful that they are there to be in the way. Love doesn't give only to those who are able to give in return, but rejoices in giving to those who can't. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Video games will break, necklaces will be lost, golf clubs will rust but the gift of love will endure. Don't you love that? It's really, really good. I love that, and I also can't stand it because love is so hard. <laughs> Gifts are easy, most, most cases. This is the first year in our house where I was actually sent a link to an Amazon shopping list from one of our kids, and I'm like, really? Is this what it's come to? Gosh, move all to cart, submit order, right? Love is hard. Real, genuine, others-centered, gospel-fueled, Jesus-based love is very difficult. How do you show love to others when you just don't want to? How do you show love to others when they don't deserve it? How do you show love to others when you don't feel like it? How do you show love to others who you don't even like? (laughs) Don't pretend you're so holy that you've never asked those questions. 
So this is the fourth and final week in this series called Advent Conspiracy. And just super quick, here's where we've been. Week one, worship fully. We were in Isaiah 9, and we talked about how Jesus is worthy of our worship. He's our Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Mighty King, this wonderful, beautiful King who's worthy of worship. And then last uh, or the second week, it was spend less. And it's this idea that if we are really truly satisfied in Jesus, we don't need all the stuff. Last week was give more, and it doesn't really mean giving money. It just means giving to what lasts, and that's Jesus. And so this week, love all. And just on the face of it, to let you know, I can't think of a more loaded phrase to dump out on you this morning than love all. Love. What does that even mean anymore? All. Really. What about people I don't like? What about those people? Whatever your version of those is. This week. So this morning we're going to drop into a very familiar gospel story. Um, it's not really a Christmas time story, at least the first 16 verses. We're eavesdropping in on a private conversation between Jesus and a very curious religious leader. Behind a closed door, late one night, Jesus draws him in and talks about God's love. And just to blow the ending for you, here's where we're going. Horizontal reconciliation with others is only possible when we know vertical reconciliation with God. Or if you want to put it another way, loving others is only possible when we know God's love for us. And so enough of the intro, let's get to it. Here's the story. He came to Jesus at night. Hard to say why exactly. Maybe it was the only time that Jesus was available, although that's Not likely. Maybe he was too busy, and maybe. Most likely, though, he just didn't want to be seen. He had his reputation to think about. He had his pride, at least for now. And this young upstart rabbi named Jesus wasn't exactly socially secure. It seemed like he made friends just as easily as he made enemies. But Nicodemus had to meet with Jesus. He had to figure him out. He had to ask him a couple of questions. Questions that demanded a private room, a personal space, and the protective cover of anonymity. Nicodemus was upper class. You might say he was white collar, blue blood, an aristocrat, country club type. And that was part of the problem. He was always being typecast. It was unfair, he thought. Made it really hard for him to get to Jesus. People only saw him for what he was, just the surfacey, incidental stuff. Looking at him, though, you might rightfully assume that he came from privilege. He was conservative in his beliefs. He was confident in his position. He was very comfortable with his life. Very easy road, the best education, a burdenless existence. Until recently. Because recently he had been watching this Jesus over the last few months, just kind of from the sidelines, like staying on the edge of the crowd, just the fringe. Always one eye on Jesus, how he acted, what he said, who he healed. The other eye on who might be watching him. Always one ear to Jesus, how he taught, the words he used, what he was saying. The other ear on the crowd's reaction. And like you and I know as is so often in life, if you look and listen hard enough, you'll usually find something, although it's usually not the something that you were after. 
Nicodemus looked and listened close enough to pique his curiosity, but not close enough to be indicted as part of the movement. He was like a policeman patrolling a neighborhood he had no intention of moving into. Boundaries are important for the religious elite. Besides, if he was ever questioned, he supposed he could always kind of defer and say, well, I'm just keeping tabs on Jesus, just making sure that his doctrine is in line. In 2021 language, Nicodemus is a spiritual seeker. Following a deep restlessness down unseen paths, not knowing where it might lead, but each step made wonderfully, beautifully more intriguing by the lessening and loosening of his own control. Nicodemus felt as though he were headed somewhere. Just couldn't say where exactly. This carpenter's son turned rabbi had actually created a little bit of a firestorm around Jerusalem recently. The past fall, he had asked his kind of crazy hermit cousin, John the Baptist, to baptize him in the Jordan River. That's a little presumptuous, Jesus, come on. Then he had invited 12 people to follow him. A handful of fishermen, a couple political revolutionaries, and even a tax collector. What is that about? And then, like, just, you know, about a month ago, he had allegedly turned water into wine at a friend's wedding. I guess you kind of had to be there to see it, but... Hmm. Jesus was teaching, but he didn't have any formal education, not like he should have. Jesus was leading, but he didn't have any powerful connections. At least it didn't seem like he did. <laughs> the odd thing was that people couldn't get enough of him. And it seemed absolutely clear that Jesus has this very strange way, at least from where Nicodemus sat, of making curious people his friends. And it always surprised Nicodemus who he called his friends, the poor in spirit and the poor in pocketbook. They have nothing to offer him. Still, love him or hate him, Jesus had a way with people. And maybe Nicodemus wondered, what would he think of me? Would my questions be welcome? Would he shame me? Would he push me away? Or would he welcome me and invite me closer? It was April, and with Passover just over his shoulder, Nicodemus was personally and professionally exhausted. Passover is a big high watermark of the year for those who make their living interpreting God's law for people. Out-of-towners, tourists, had come into David's city, eager to celebrate God's high holy holiday in Jerusalem. They had gathered to remember how God rescued them from slavery hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. Once upon a time, they were slaves to cruel taskmasters. They were hopeless and helpless, backs against the wall, nothing they could do but God. Back then, God had intervened. God made the first move. God set them free. God had taken initiative. God had done something. And Passover was kind of like their shared collective family story. What they couldn't do for themselves, God did for them. God had saved them. Nicodemus loved to think about that. He loved to think about that story, to rehearse those truths over and over again. Good thing I'm around, he may have thought. Until this Messiah gets here, whenever that is, my people need me. They need my interpretation. They need my wisdom, my insight, my learning, my experience. He had celebrated dozens of Passovers. But this year, something was different for Nicodemus. 
even in his exhaustion, or maybe because of his exhaustion, he felt something very deep welling up inside of him. He just had to talk to this Jesus. Couldn't put his finger on what this deep welling up was. Maybe it was the Passover lamb. A lifetime of sacrificial spotless lambs does a lot to rouse someone's spiritual curiosity, wouldn't it? And what did his cousin mean when he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? What was that about? Maybe it was the readings around Passover, like another trip through the Psalms. He had led through those before. He'd even taught little boys to memorize the Psalms in the synagogue, rehearsing God's promise and his provision, king after king, had to pique his curiosity. When would this king come? And what did Jesus' disciples mean when they pointed at him just a couple of months ago and said, you're the king of Israel? Could they be serious? Or maybe it was just a week earlier when Jesus had entered the temple and flipped over the tables and cleared out the salesmen. Passover was big business. A lot of people in town, they want to remember God's faithfulness. What's wrong with giving them something to take home with them, a little tchotchke? What's wrong with helping them meditate on God's provision, how good God is? Did Jesus have a better plan? Whatever it was, Nicodemus couldn't ignore it. He couldn't put his finger on it, but he was sure. He couldn't handle another Passover, another spotless lamb, another lecture on God's provision, another commentary about another king. He couldn't go through the motions again one more time without pressing into this Jesus. And so, time finally comes. Nicodemus and Jesus meet in a low-lit room late at night behind a locked door. After the small talk, Nicodemus, unable to hold it back anymore, steers the conversation. He asks three very direct questions and gets three characteristically unsatisfying answers. First question, probably fell out of his mouth with all the grace of a dam breaking wide open. He says, Jesus, like you're a great teacher, you're doing incredible things. Are you from God? Nicodemus, you'll never see what I'm doing with those eyes. You need to be born again. Okay, Jesus, you say I need to be born again. Like, do you mean that literally? Because that's really weird and definitely impossible and probably a little gross. What do you mean, Jesus? Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wants to. Nothing on earth can direct this. God works that way, Nicodemus. Okay, Jesus, you're talking about the Holy Spirit, I guess. Like, so what does that pillar of fire from the desert, long, long time ago, what does that have to do with me? Well, Nicodemus, since you brought up the desert, just like Moses lifted his staff up in the wilderness, I will be lifted up one day. Make sense? Tracking with me? Clear as mud, Nicodemus? <laughs> and then the temperature heats up. It's easy to imagine Jesus leaning forward and Nicodemus' eyes squinting to listen. The conversation shifts from a dialogue between two people into a monologue with just one. 
conversation stops and Jesus becomes the only speaker. And as Nicodemus slips into becoming the silent listener, Jesus' point comes into its clearest focus. Like, what is all this about, Jesus? What are you doing and why are you doing all these things? And why can't I stop thinking about you? And then here is Jesus' answer. You've heard it before. This is John chapter 3, verse 16. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then here comes the Christmas time verse, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about that as a Christmas time text, but it absolutely is. Verse 16 is the why behind Christmas. Why would God even bother to love? All this rigmarole, prophecies and coming kings and angels and shepherds, why bother? Verse 16 provides the answer, because God loves you. And then verse 17 is the how. Well, how does God even show his love? Like, To what extent is God willing to go to prove to my stubborn, self-hating heart that God actually loves me so much that he sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, Mm -mm, mm -mm. but that the world might be saved through him? Sending his son into the world, born to a teenage girl in the back alley with nobody around. In a backwater town that you would not move to, with only a handful of shepherds as witnesses. This son lived a spotless life, never once broke God's law, thereby providing a spotless sacrificial death, the death that should have been yours and mine, and then he rose three days later to show us that death doesn't win. So anybody who could, come. 2,000 years later, right? Those are still, in my opinion, Two of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture. They showcase God's motive, they reveal his heart, and they speak very candidly and clearly about his purpose. Daring us to believe the impossible and inviting us to accept the unimaginable. But, could you imagine how those verses must have landed on Nicodemus' ears? We sit back and go, yeah, awesome. But sitting across a table... In a midnight conversation, could you imagine how this religious leader, Pharisee, would have heard this? God so loved the world? Loved? Ah, I admit, Jesus, it's it's been a while since I've thought about it that way. Loved, huh? The world, okay, the world. Like, not just us, like religious types who have our stuff together and look good, but God loved the world? Huh. That he sent his son. He sent. Wait, so past tense? Like, he's already here? How did I miss him? Where is he? That the world might be saved. Like Passover lamb saved Jesus? That's the best saving that God's ever done. We just celebrated it, and we keep celebrating it. This is our story. And you're telling me that Messiah, who will come... Will be better than that? Wait, are you saying that... Hang on, Jesus. Do you mean that you're... Hmm. This is just me 
in my sanctified imagination here. But if you were a fly on the wall in that room, like, here's Jesus, like, all right, Nick, enough of the small talk. I'm done with the academics. I'm not interested in theory. I am interested in you. I am not here to play mental gymnastics with God's law. I am here to show you God's heart. Everything that you've ever taught, everything that you've ever felt, everything you've ever wondered, the point of all of that, the hope that is in your heart and the thought that you can't get out of your head, this deep ache for what you think could be and this dream for what you think should be, all of that, Nicodemus, me. I'm here because God does not want to show you what you could do for him. He wants to show you what he has done for you. That lamb, that king, that sacrifice, that's me. Me, for you. I am that perfect spotless lamb. I am that king who will rule in peace. I am that salvation that you've prayed for. Through me will come the reconciliation between God and man that you're always teaching about, Nicodemus. Through me will come the reconciliation between God and man that he's always written about. Through me will come the reconciliation between God and man that makes reconciliation between man and man even possible. Nicodemus, God loves you. He's a good father. And because he's a good father, he wants to give you something for free. No cost, at least to you. Sounds strange to say this, Nicodemus, but I am that gift. So I love that story, and I know you've read it before. Many of you probably have, and I know you've seen John 3.16 sitting on poster boards at football games or written with a Sharpie on somebody's shoes. But there's a lot more to it, isn't there? There's a lot in there, those two little verses. We get a wonderful picture of God's love for us, this amazing, compelling love I think one of the things we got to ask ourselves is, okay, um, what do I need to get out of that? Like, wow, that's amazing. It's good. It's a good story. It's a good scene. So born out of this text, we get a really good picture of what love is and what love isn't. And so before we talk about what this means for us here today, I want to give us four things that love is not, and then a working definition of what love is, because I think it's very important for us to clarify this, especially because Christmas is coming, and people are coming over to your house, and maybe you have to buy gifts for people. You put on a happy face, what do you do? First thing that love is not. Love is not a feeling, okay? So um, whenever Mandy and I do pre-marriage counseling with a couple who's about to get married, or whenever you attend any marriage conference ever, that's probably the first thing you're going to hear. Love is not a feeling, right? Love is not infatuation. Love is not pure emotion. Love is not sizzle on the steak. Love must be something more than that. For love to be love, there must be something deeper, something lasting, something resolute. Here's something to consider. God's movement to restore a broken world is not purely an emotional decision for him. Do you ever think about that? God's love for you is not based on how he feels about you in the moment. Praise God. Because if you read most of the Old Testament, God has an emotional life. Don't kid yourself. If you read the book of Hosea, it's just like, oh gosh, I'm just yearning for you, my people. 
But God's move to send Jesus into this world, John 3, 17, is motivated by what brings him glory and us joy. Love is not a feeling. It is way better than that. This is the first thing that love is not. Love is not just a feeling. Second thing that love is not. Love is not just an agreement. It's not just agreement. This is something that's thrown out in our world a lot today, and a lot of you know this. It sounds like this. If you love me, you will agree with everything I say, and you'll support everything I do. And the moment you pull away from that, the moment you question me, the moment you disagree with me, you are no longer loving me. You are now hating me. Just agree with me. Here's my problem with that is it's just inconsistent. <laughs> On the face of it, it sounds easy. Like, I like that. So, like, I never have to have another argument again. I just have to agree with you. Boy, just like rubber stamp morality as it, like, comes over. Okay, I'm in. Here's the problem with that, though. <laughs> the moment I separate actual genuine love for someone from spiritual truth about someone, I neuter both. You following me? I can have an emotional connection. I can have something for you. I want to love you. But there are deep, unchanging spiritual truths about you that have to go together. And so trying to love someone apart from spiritual truth about someone is like trying to drive a car without a steering wheel or trying to build a building without blueprints. Like, you will get somewhere. You will build something. It just won't last. And it will be wildly inconsistent with how we have been designed by God, intentionally designed. And more importantly, it's just not how he made you. There must be something deeper than just simply agreeing. The third thing that love is not is that love is not just a position. Now, if that first one or the second one felt like I was throwing darts at the world, this one maybe like hits a little bit closer to home for a lot of us as Christians. Love's not just a position, right? We, we, we hear Jesus' words and he says like, you will know that, uh, that uh, you're my disciples by your love. And we go, oh, okay, okay, I love my neighbor. I genuinely do. I am a nice person. Here's the catch. Biblically, it's not enough just to say it. We have to do something about it. This is the heart behind 1 John 3, when John says, little children, let us not just love in word and speech, but also in deeds and in truth. Here's his point. We show what we love by what we do. Right? So you can say you love your spouse, you can say you love your neighbor, you can say you love your kids, but you can't just say it. We have to demonstrate that love somehow in a meaningful way. We prove what we love by what we do, or if you want a kitschy way of thinking about it, love is not just a position I take, it's a decision that I make. Fourth thing that love is not, related to number three, love is not easy. <laughs> and all the married people said, amen. <laughs> Not too loudly, though, because your spouse may be sitting with you. But beyond all the marriage cliches, like, everybody knows this is, this is hard, right? Real love is hard. <laughs> it's why we all feel like hypocrites when we sit with Jesus' words that say, they'll know you're my disciples when you love each other. And part of us wants to go like, well, maybe you ought to have a plan B, Jesus, because if you're counting on me to, oh, man, because I know how far short I fall. Here's the gospel truth, is that love always costs, doesn't it? Could cost you money, could cost you time, could cost you energy, but most often, and I'm sorry in advance for this one, love costs me my pride. I have to give something up that I would really rather hold on to. But here's the fascinating part about biblical gospel-centered love. You wouldn't want love if it was easy. You really wouldn't. 
It's because love is so costly that makes it so beautiful. So love is not a feeling, it's not agreement, it's not a position, and it's not easy. So what is the definition of love? Now this is just me. This is my working definition from Encyclopedia Brananica. <clears throat> so here you go. Don't tweet that. When I look to scripture and I try and gather all of this, here's how I would define love. Love is a choice to pursue God's best for someone else at great cost to myself. Love is a choice to pursue God's best for someone else at great cost to myself. Let me hit this really quick, and then we're going to get into the what do we do with it. First, it's a choice. It's a decision. It's not a feeling like, I have to do this even when I don't feel like it. It's a choice. It's hard. To pursue God's best. Not what I think is best. Not what you think is best, but to pursue God's best for you based on what he's already shown us in his word. For somebody else. Oh, that's the hard part, isn't it? Yes, I fulfilled all of your Amazon Christmas list because I am awesome. Oh, no, 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 no. I have to do this selflessly? Oh. <laughs> At great cost to myself. Like we said, love always costs. And I hardly need to tell you, for Jesus to step in and be God's love incarnate cost him absolutely everything. What better model of love could we have? So what do we do with all of this? In the last nine minutes, here's where we're going to go. Let's take all of that and move into application. Something that I love about Jesus and I find so compelling about Jesus is his ability to differentiate between that which describes a person and that which defines a person. We see this in his conversation with Nicodemus. You see this all over the New Testament. I'm thinking of this late night conversation. He shares the why of Christmas, because God loves you, John 3.16. The how of Christmas, his incarnation, John 3.17. And then how this idea of reconciliation just tumbles and cascades throughout the entire New Testament. If we're going to love people like Jesus does, here's the thing I want us to get. We need to look past what's incidental about people and see what is intentional about them. To look past what's incidental and see what is intentional. Let me define those words really quick. Incidental. We've all got stuff about us that's incidental. Right? This is the outside stuff, what we do for work, what group we fit into, how we dress, how we talk. These are all the dinks and dents that like impact our life as we ping pong through around for a couple of decades, right? These are the incidental things about us, and they matter, but here's the catch. We get into trouble when we start trying to love people as if the incidental things are the things that define us. They don't. And we get stuck because we object to the incidental things. We find it very hard to forgive. We find it very hard to let go. We find it very hard to get over. We find it very hard to bless. We find it very hard to be gracious because those incidental things stick in our craw a little bit. Well, if we're supposed to not look at the incidental, what do we look at? The intentional. Here's what I mean by this. Biblical Anthropology 101. Here's how God views humanity. This is the basic, unchanging, beautiful stuff. God's word teaches that every human being ever, anywhere, no matter what they say, no matter what they think, has been created in his image, thoughtfully, wonderfully, beautifully, intentionally, purposefully, every eyelash on your head, every little wrinkle in your knuckle, every freckle that you wish wasn't there, that's intentional, 
But not just the physical stuff, the unseen stuff, right? Our emotional predispositions, that's intentional. Your personality, your gifts, your strengths, all that, intentional. Our joys and our sorrows, all intentional. Every individual ever created has been made intentionally, crafted by a loving God. And that's why one reason why atheism is such a depressing way to look at life. Atheism as a worldview, the idea that a person is merely the, ran- the result of random effects and events is not only just depressing, it's just dehumanizing as a worldview because it elevates the incidental and denies the intentional. That's just so dehumanizing. But here's the real beauty. And here's where Jesus lives, and here's where I want to call us to. No one ever, anywhere, can remove God's image from another person. It is irrevocable. So yes, it is soured by our selfishness and clouded by our callousness. That is called sin. When we break God's law, sometimes it feels like a dimly lit lamp when we try and look at other people, and it feels like a forgotten pathway in ourselves. But from the moment of conception until you close your eyes in death, you are an image bearer of the holy God. And it is impossible to lose that. From the most despicable death row inmate to the holiest walking, talking saint, his thumbprint is on you. And as long as you are here, it is there. And that's why everybody deserves the opportunity to experience God's love. That's why nobody is beyond the reach of reconciliation. Now really, living this way is way harder than it sounds, isn't it? Jesus was a master at this. Not just here in John 3, but in John 4. Think about this. He keeps going. John 4. Think about what everybody else sees, and then think about what Jesus sees and how he interacts. John 4. Everybody else sees a five times married woman whose life is a mess, and they're like, just get your life together, lady. They won't even meet with her at the well at the right time of day. She has to find another time to go. And Jesus sits with her and talks with her. Why? Because Jesus looks past the incidental, and he sees the intentional. Luke chapter 7. This is one of my favorites. A well-known prostitute with a well-known past and a well-known story walks uninvited into a religious leader's house, kneels at Jesus' feet, and starts wiping his feet with her hair. That's scandalous. Everybody else sees her sin and her shame and all this stuff, and Jesus looks at her and says, you know those sins? Forgiven. Peter, who denied him. Thomas, who doubted him. Judas, who betrayed him. And then sitting at Passover dinner together with the all-knowing Son of God, three years after John 3, all those guys still get served communion. How is that possible? Because Jesus looks past the incidental and he sees the intentional. Well, that sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? Just look past the incidental and see the intentional. It's a great idea until we have to apply it. So if this idea of loving others is hard, here's what I want you to get at. Loving others, like God calls us to, is only possible because of God's love for us. Here is the really rough but challenging, game-changing principle for us. If we're really going to love all, genuinely, deeply, courageously, like Jesus does, hear me on this. Christians have the responsibility to push back against anything that threatens the image of God in another person. Think about that for a minute. Anytime 
Any time there's a threat to the image of God in another person, Christians should be the first ones there. And saying with our lives, not just our slogans or our signs or our Facebook posts, but saying with our lives that there is a better way. Because we have been shown love, we love more freely. Because we've been shown love, we love more consistently. Because we've been shown love, we love more courageously. Because we've been shown love, we love more thoughtfully. Adoption. Let's just take a look at that one social issue. Adoption isn't noble because it makes for a more charming family. Furthest thing from it has nothing to do with that. Adoption is noble because it affirms the inestimable worth of the image of God in another person. When I look down my nose or snub my neighbor or I look spitefully at them because they voted differently than I do or they believe differently than I do about insert issue here, that isn't wrong because of bad manners and it's bad social practice. When I look spitefully at my neighbor, it actually has its roots in evil because that person is an image bearer and I'm called to love them. When I choose the incidental over the intentional, I'm actually choosing a harsher metric than God does and I should not sit easily with that. But when I freely, consistently, courageously, thoughtfully love those who don't deserve it, I'm doing two things. I'm declaring that I need it too and I'm affirming the image of God in somebody else, as hard as it is. Now, I know all of that is really strong, and it seems impossible, and so I'm going to push it one step further. Because some of us are going, well, okay, 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 okay. I get it. I got to love them. Do I have to like them? <laughs> can I just be, like, annoyed with them, or can I just, like, keep them at arm's distance? Here's my answer. I don't know. Like, in theory, I guess. And then I'm, here's where I got to go. Is I just can't see Jesus saying that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know that's really harsh. But, like, I can't see Jesus not liking anybody except those who perceive themselves to be perpetually likable. I can't see him being annoyed with anybody except the super religious and the superficial. I can't see him keeping his distance from anybody except those who choose to keep their distance from him. And so I guess, like, in theory, I could call myself a moral person and still be annoyed with people keeping at distance or not like him. I just can't call myself a Christian. <laughs> That's really hard. Let's muse on something before we close. To truly see somebody else as an image bearer, to really love them as Jesus does, takes a deep and formative, substantial work of God in my heart. We are not born this way. We are far too selfish. We do not naturally love like this. And that's exactly why we're called to do it. So, here's where we're going to go next. We're going to take some time this morning. Um, I actually shortened the message, believe it or not. (laughs) Because here's what I want to do. I know that going into this time of year is very challenging for a lot of us. It is me. And so what we're going to do, the band's going to come back on in a little bit. And the first round of this, I just want you to sit and receive this song. Um, It's a clever play on words. It says, Come All You Unfaithful. Isn't that great? Just sit and receive this because if you're feeling that and you're going, gosh, I'm so overwhelmed by what I've done and what I haven't done, it's okay, come. And then I'm going to come back up about a minute or so in and we're going to have a time of prayer um, because I know we need to pray about this because I need God to work. And so at that point, I'm going to invite you, turn with the people that you came with. 
You can turn your chairs if you want to, as long as you put them back. I'm going to take a minute here before we leave and just let God do what God needs to do. You can talk for a minute or so. We'll have about two and a half minutes in this place to pray together. But turn with your family. And if you're here by yourself, you can sit in silence. That's fine. Or you can go last with somebody else. But let's have a time where we just ask God, just say, God, help me do this. Help me love others. Because you probably have a Nicodemus in your own life. Or you may be Nicodemus. And you say, well, I need to see your love, God, because I don't experience it and I don't know it. And so we're going to pray. I think it's very, very important for us to do in this space. And then after we pray, we are going to stand and sing. And Pastor Michael invites you to do that, where we can stand and sing together and commit this Christmas week to the Lord. So let me pray over us right now. Father, we come to you and we're just desperate for you to work. I say thank you so much that this gospel truth that you loved us so much to send your son into this world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And that what happened in a manger culminated in a cross and was celebrated by an empty tomb. And Lord, you've committed to us the message of reconciliation. You've given us this gospel so that we can give it away. And so, Father, in these moments, I pray you would help us. We love you, Lord, and we need you. So, Father, as we move into these moments, we sit and reflect on these words, and then as we circle in prayer with those around us, God, I pray that you would work in our hearts and do this substantial and sovereign and formative work for us. Father, we need you. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.